All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Good to see everybody this morning. I want to encourage you to pull, pull out your Bible's message notes. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today. We're going to be talking about the sower and the seeds. It's a parable that Jesus taught on, and we're going to be looking at that intently this morning. Uh, pull out your Bibles. Let's dive into it. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Before we jump into it, actually, last week I was so sick that I forgot to mention the greatest highlight of Vacation Bible School, and uh, I was kicking myself about it. Um, we had 12 uh, decisions for Christ during Vacation Bible School week. Isn't that awesome? So between elementary kids, and we had one middle schooler, and so really excited about what God's going to do in their life. All right, Matthew chapter 13, 1 to 9. You guys ready? All right, here we go. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The context of Matthew chapter 13, at this point, Jesus has a massive entourage by now. He has a a band of 12 men who have literally left everything to follow him. He has a large number of disciples that have been following him. Whole towns have been emptying to see this miracle worker. And there are literally scores of women who are supporting Jesus' ministry. He's teaching on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds are pressing in on him so much that he actually has to get into a boat. And he has to teach the people from a distance. And you have to remember... um, The towns and the villages in Israel at this time were anywhere from 50 to 75 to 100 people. So to get into a boat and to teach because the crowd was so big, he must have drew a big crowd that day. Many people came to hear him. Some claim that this was probably the greatest crowd up until this point in his ministry. We know many people follow Jesus for lots of reasons, right? Some people, they just wanted the benefits from the miracles. Some people were curious. They were curious about this guy, right? They knew that there was a a coming Messiah. The prophets predicted that. Some people were spiritually curious, right? They were hungry for truth. Um, Maybe they weren't getting... Um, their spiritual needs met from the religious establishment. Some people just flat out rejected him, but I, I think maybe they were on the fringe, you know, and so they were, um, they were curious. They wanted maybe to sample some of his teaching. Uh, the gospel writer Luke gives us more context to what Matthew gives us. Luke 8, 4 says, When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to see him, he said in a parable, 
You know, Jesus used parables a lot. He was the master communicator. Hands down, he was the best storyteller to have ever lived. He was such a dynamic speaker that throngs of people would come and they would gather and they would just hang on every word. Jesus taught in parables. Really, this is the best known, most famous literary form. The Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are well over 50 parables. So the question that you might be asking is, well, what is a parable? Well, a parable is, parables are not fables or fairy tales. They're fictional stories taught by Jesus. Parables are earthly stories that drive home a spiritual point. They're illustrations. Sometimes they're analogies. The genre of a parable is one of comparison. Anytime you read a parable, there's always two parts. There's the story part of the parable, an earthly story. Then there's the reality part, which is driving home the spiritual point. So there's a story part, there's a reality part. The reality part is kind of highlighting the comparison because parables, it's about comparison. Jesus tells a story, of a parable, uh, to make a comparison, to drive home a point. So this famous parable is called the parable of the sower. It's an important parable in Mark and his ministry. I want, I want us to uh, read it again in uh, Matthew 13, 3 to 9. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some 100, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So when you look at the parable, the imagery here is one of agriculture. So, you know, Jesus was a master communicator, so he was tapping into the, the culture, the society of the day. People understood agriculture, right? Many of the people were farmers, and so it was very familiar to them. So he tells a story about a sower going out to plant some seeds, some seed falls on the hard beaten path. This is like hard pressed soil. The seed doesn't penetrate the hard soil. It's actually gonna be trampled underfoot or birds are gonna devour the seed. Now, some seed falls on the rock, the rocky ground. And it grew a little, but, but due to the hard underlying rock bed underneath the surface, it withers away because there's no moisture. Some seed falls on the thorns. The word here used, is used to describe the crown of thorns placed on Jesus's head. These were uh, prickly weeds that grew up and, and choked its life out. Actually, when I was in Israel, uh, we were making our way through the region, and the bus comes to a, um, an abrupt stop, and I look at my wife's uncle, uh, Pastor Uncle Roger, my spiritual mentor, and I say, hey, well, what are we doing? He said, oh, you'll see, you'll see. And uh, the tour guy gets off the bus, goes to this bush. There's bushes lining the, lining the street of the road, which is very interesting. Path, rocky ground, bushes lining the street of the road. He goes with a pair of clippers. 
and he clips a branch off. And he comes back on and actually puts it all together and then he hands it to me. And he said, the, this is the crown of thorns. This is the exact, this is the type of bush that they used to put the crown of thorns upon Jesus' head. Kind of interesting when you think about the parable, the path, rocky ground, thorns. The thorns, the word here is used to describe the crown of thorns that they put on his head. Prickly weeds that grew up and choked his life out. Some seed falls on the good soil and produces a crop. Um, The ground is soft, deep, free of weeds, plenty of moisture, sunlight. At this point, Jesus is only speaking to the crowds in parables. Um, But then he interprets them in private to his disciples. Look at verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So we know that there are hundreds, thousands of messianic prophecies about Jesus. There is a specific prophecy tucked away in Isaiah, which I'm getting ready to read, that is pointing to how Jesus communicated to the people. That is amazing. Right? We, we know all, there's so many detailed prophecies that he fulfilled, but here's one. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So the question is, why did Jesus speak in parables? Two reasons. Number one, to conceal his teaching. He wanted to conceal his teaching. Um, In Matthew 13, it says, then then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? I mean, they're curious, right? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You should underline that. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not understand. Jesus gives us the reason for why his teaching was concealed early on. Here's, okay, so Matthew goes on and he cites Isaiah chapter 6 in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 13. It says, indeed in their case, um, in their case the prophecy of, of, of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, quote, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Least they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So we know the backdrop of all of this, right? You know, the people of Israel, you know, they felt left out. They wanted to be like all the other nations. They didn't have a king. And so we know the story, right? God gives them Saul, tall, dark, handsome. He was the people's choice, not God's choice. David was, God, David was God's choice. And we know that, you know, David, and then there's a lineage of kings, but God was bringing prophet after prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the united kingdom to bring God's people back to himself. And we know that time and time again, the people fell into idolatry. They, they fell into syncretism. They were mixing truth and falsehood. And they wanted to be like all the other nations. And so they, there was this willful, willful hardening of the heart towards the God who brought them out of Egypt. Jesus is making the point here 
in the Gospel of Matthew that this is a willful hardening of hearts. This is a rejection of the truth. The religious leaders rejected Jesus and his message. Now, if Jesus didn't teach in parables, then his opponents would quickly find fault with him and his message. Here's point number two. Why did Jesus teach in parables? To illustrate and reveal his message to his followers. So he, he was about illustrating, revealing his message to his disciples. Now Jesus gives us the interpretation of this parable. So let's, let's look at it together. Let's dig into it and we're going to break it down and, and see God's truth and then how does it apply to our lives. Um, 18, to ver- 18 to 23 of Matthew 13. Here's the interpretation. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. I love that. I want to chase a few things. Okay, I'm going to wait. Hold on. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Okay, so that's number one. That's the first seed. As for what was sown on rocky ground, here's the second seed. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the third seed. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And here's the last seed, the fourth seed. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. So he hears it, he understands it, and notice what it says. He indeed bears fruit. And yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So Jesus tells this story about a farmer who goes out to sow some seed. And it's an agrarian culture, so they get it. The seed falls on four different types of soil the path, the rocky ground, the thorns, and the good soil. Now, when you come to a parable, there are play- players in the parable. And so There's a story part, there's the reality part, but then you have to figure out, okay, who are the players? Who do the players represent? And the meaning of the parable always comes at the very end. The meaning of the parable is the climax of the parable. Generally, the very last thing that was said gives you the grand meaning of the parable. So you have the sower, you have seed, And then you have different soil, right? Four different types of soil. The sower, obviously, is Jesus. Jesus is the farmer, right? He's the sower. He's the one initiating. He's the one revealing. He's the one sowing the gospel seed. It's Christ who left heaven and came to earth and and brought the kingdom, right? Brought the message of the kingdom, But not only is Jesus the sower, we also are farmers as well. We're also sowing seed as believers. Or we should be sowing seed. We should be sharing the gospel, the good news with people who are lost. 
So the sower is Jesus, or the sower is believers who share the good news of God's saving grace, and the seed is the word of God. The seed is the Bible, truth, the gospel message. The gospel writer Luke, he gives us insight on this parable. He says that the seed is the word of God. Peter, who was one of the the disciples, he was the... uh, the boisterous, outspoken leader of the pack, right? Peter, in his epistle, he said, um, Peter tells us that believers have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the seed is the gospel, the word of God. The soil, these four different types of soil, is a metaphor for the heart. So the question is, what soil are you, right? Are you path? Are you rocky ground? Are you, um, what was the third one? Path, rocky ground, thorns, or good soil? Which soil are you? And notice at the very end, in verse 9, it says, at the very end it says, He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is saying, Pay attention. Listen. Because what I just told you is very important. So the sower and the seeds, this story, is about hearing and heeding the words of Jesus. Here's the reality. When you come to the Bible, you got to do something with it. When you come to the, the teachings of Jesus, you have to do something with it. It's not neutral. It can't just stay there, Right? Either you embrace it, you treasure it, you love it, you live it, or you reject it and no, he's not the son of God, he's not Messiah, he's not God in the flesh, he's, he's, he was just a prophet, you know, he was, he was just a good man, you got to do something with it. Jesus is saying, listen, you got to do something with my word, right? So the parable is about heeding, hearing, listening, right? Romans, in the book of Romans, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the kingdom of God comes by getting the truth and having it penetrate our heart, having it penetrate our lives. So you have these four conditions of the heart, which by the way, Jesus only gives four conditions. Four conditions of the heart back then, there's four conditions of the heart today. And so let's look at these. The first one is the hard heart, the hard heart. Jesus tells us in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, we know that there is a, another kingdom, right? We know that Jesus is the king of kings, Lord of lords, right? We are not of this world. We're a part of a different kingdom. We're kingdom citizens of his kingdom, which is eternal, which is not earthly, it's spiritual, He said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Luke says, the gospel writer Luke, looking at the same parable, he talks about the ones along the path are those um, who have heard. And then he says, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So Luke clearly demonstrates in his writing that this person has a hard heart. They're they're not a believer. They haven't been saved. 
uh, this person has heard the gospel and they have rejected the gospel. But the devil plays a part in it. The devil, the enemy, he comes and he steals and, and he snatches away the truth from their hearts. He snatches the truth, the, the, the word from their hearts. This, he snatches the life-giving seed. You know, some people say, well, you know, I don't need God. You know, Christianity is a crutch for weak people. And, you know, you know the Bible, it's just a fabrication of, like, the early church followers. Like, it's, it's really, I mean, come on. It, it's just like it's man-made, man-written. Here's the deal. When you come to the Bible, it spans thousands of years, over 40 authors, different time periods, different backgrounds, personalities, different, um, when I say personality, different, um, different ways of, of God, like the writings, like Paul and Peter are totally different. Like James is really like practical, right? But Paul is very logical and argumentative and he, could, he can explain the deep things of God. I mean, even... I mean, it was even in the New Testament, they were like, man, you know, some of Paul's stuff is hard to understand, you know. I mean, you, you have like the Bible is this beautiful puzzle that comes together, spanning thousands of years, over 40 authors, Old, New Testament. But people come, oh, you know, it's man written. You have bright people like, like Luke. He wrote the gospel. Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. He was a doctor. He wasn't a dummy. He was very bright. He was intellectual. I mean, he did an investigation on Jesus. He went out and he talked to people. He compiled all the written records and oral traditions and, and he gave us the gospel of Luke. But sometimes people come and they, oh, you know, there's, there isn't a creator. Christianity is not true. It's the enemy snatching the truth from them. I think Satan uses a lot of different things to snatch truth. I think he can use false teachers to snatch the true message of the gospel. He can use pride in someone's life. He can use doubt. I've met a lot of people that have a lot of doubt about Christianity, a lot of doubt about Jesus. I think the enemy can use the love of sin to snatch truth out of someone's life. You know, the seed cannot germinate unless it's under the ground. So the message of the gospel has to penetrate your heart. The message of the gospel has to do a life-transforming work. It has, it has to move from the theoretical to personal discovery. It has to change you. With this person, they have such a hard heart, the seed that fell in the path, nothing moves this person. Nothing stirs them spiritually. Their heart is hard like concrete. And maybe their heart is hard like concrete because maybe they've gone through a lot of pain, suffering, tragedy. Who knows? Could be a lot of pride. Could be a lot of doubt. We don't know. Here's the second seed, a shallow heart. The shallow heart. In verse 20 and 21, Jesus gives us the interpretation. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. When you go to the gospel, Luke, he says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a little while, and in time of testing, fall away. So this person, they hear the word, 
And the, and the story says they, they receive it with joy. I think, this is my interpretation, I think this person has this emotional experience with Christ. I think it's emotional. They, they, they say they found Christ. It's this verbal profession. The problem is, in the story, there's no root. Yes, they receive it with joy, but there's no root. The truth has never really penetrated their hearts. There's no real lasting life change. Let me say it this way. Joy, it says they receive it with joy. Joy is not a distinguishing mark of salvation. Obedience is. Those are two different things. You can receive something with joy and then discard it, reject it later. You can do that with a lot of things. Obedience is is the marker. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I think these people, they're brushed by Christianity. They've tasted the gospel, but they haven't swallowed it. I don't think there's, there's no depth, there's no strong roots. It's just a shallow, momentary decision for Jesus. No total commitment, no walk with God. And the reason I hold that view is because you see people that made professions to follow Jesus. I mean, Paul called out Demas in one of his letters. Paul called him out and said, Demas, having loved this present world, he has abandoned me. He's left me. He, he fell in love with the world. He was once walking with God, but now he's not. The Apostle John, you know, later in life when he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, I think it's actually in 1st John, he talks about those who were among us, some of them have left proving that they were never really of us. So externally, it looks like, oh, the seed is good soil, they're a follower of Jesus, but really it's not good soil. It's rocky ground. They've received the truth with joy, but it's, it's, a, it's a momentary decision. Hard times come. They turn back. Their faith shrivels. It says, but, but their faith endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I like what Tim Keller said. Tim Keller said this. He said, they wanted a blesser, not a savior. A sugar daddy, not a king. They wanted help and relief, not salvation. They saw Jesus as a service provider. Oh, man. Service provider. I think some people come to Christ and they treat Jesus or they treat God as like more than this cosmic buddy. It's, it's almost like this, you're going to be my personal spiritual counselor. You're going to get me through life. You're going to help me make decisions, right? Because if I follow your principles, my life is going to line up and I'm going to have a great life. But he's not your personal counselor. Don't take me the wrong way, right? He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's prince of peace. 
What I'm saying is he's not your service provider. He's not there just to bless you. He's not there to give you your best life ever. He's not there to just give you all the goodies, right? And I, I think this is, this is what I think Tim Keller lasered in on that I think is, is really true. And, and that is there is this momentary, yes, belief, but not saving faith. Because when the testing comes, when the affliction comes, when their faith is really tested, they fall back, right? They, they fall away. Here's the third point. The third seed is a divided heart. Jesus tells us in verse 22, he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The gospel writer Luke when he, when he talks about this parable, he says, as for, and as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this world, and their fruit does not mature. So that's, there's a difference there. So this person, they hear the word, but their life is a bit crowded. Right? They have divided loyalties. Their life is consumed with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. The seed is choked before producing any fruit in their life. You know, Jesus on one occasion in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons he ever preached, he said, you cannot serve God in money. Because when you do that, you're sharing space with greedy neighbors. You can't share space. See, the idols, I think Jesus is saying the idols are going to, you're going to be choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. These are the idols of, of the human heart. John Calvin, the great reformer, he said, every human heart is an idol-making factory. We all have idols in our lives. And which idols do you have? Which idols are you, are you um, putting to death, as Colossians says? You know, it's, it's hard to tell, honestly, if this person is a believer or not. I'm going to say this. I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I don't want to say something that's going to cause someone to be like, well, well, are you saying that someone can be a believer and then they can fall away and not be a believer? Here's, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it as simply and as clearly as possible. If you have been genuinely saved, if you have been genuinely saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Now, I don't know if someone's saved or not. I could look at their life. I, you know, evidence of saving faith is fruit. Is there fruit in their life? Right? The Apostle John talks about fruit. Do you love God? Do you hate your sin? Do you love people? Yeah, there's markers there. Is there fruit in their life? Right? But at the end of the day, they're standing before God. Not, it's between them and God. I don't know their heart. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to be the judge. God's the judge of, every, of everyone. But the Bible is very clear that when you come to faith in Christ, he doesn't give you salvation and take it away. The Bible says that 
He who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of completion. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you have the Son, you have life. If you have the Son, you have passed from death unto life. You've been adopted into the family of God. You're sealed unto the day of redemption. The the Bible is so clear that if you know Christ, you are forever secure in Him. Okay, am I making that clear enough? I'm making that clear, right? Okay. This whole notion, well, once saved, always saved, you got to be real careful with that. Well, I prayed that prayer, hogwash. Like, nowhere nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to pray this prayer. Why do we pray the prayer? To express faith in Christ. I think praying a prayer is good. I was leading kids to pray that prayer during vacation Bible school. But I kept stressing with them. There's nothing magical about a prayer. It's about you expressing your faith in Christ. You have to mean it. It has to be personal. Right? It's your commitment. It's your decisions. Your faith in Christ. There's nothing magical about a prayer. Prayer cannot save you. There's only one thing that can save you. And that is the death and finished work of Christ on the cross. That's it. There's nothing else we can do. There's nothing we can hold to. There's nothing we can cling to except the cross. So if, yes, if, if you're a believer, you, you have eternal life. And that cannot be taken away from you. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, this is speaking to like, you know, this third seed, the thorns. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I love the contrast there. You know, the, the, these, uh, these three great temptations, the desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, pride of life, the world's passing away, and all of its desires, all of these massive temptations, they're all going to go away someday. But those who do the will of God will abide forever. I love that contrast. Earthly life, momentary fleeting, it's going to be gone someday. Everything, if you're living for riches and pleasures and sex and just what you can get out of life, trust me, it's all going to be gone someday. In a moment, it's going to be gone. But those who walk with God, those who abide in Christ, those who do the will of God, those who are true believers, they will live forever. Here's the fourth soil, response of heart. Jesus tells us in verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So I want, you to, I want you to notice three things. Number one, he hears the word. Number two, he understands the word. And number three, he bears fruit. He doesn't just hear it and understand it. He does something with it. Right? He, he lets it change him, right? There's fruit, there's growth, there's transformation. Luke says, as for, that in, 
ask for that in the good soil. They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast. I love that. Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So this seed brings forth fruit. Life transformation. This seed penetrates the heart, softens it. It's not strangled by competing desires. This is a heart that allows God's word to take deep root within it. The heart is remade. If you're a follower of Christ, right, you, you heard the gospel, you understood the gospel, and then you held fast to the gospel, right? You, you, you yielded your life, then the result is you're going to bear fruit. Now notice, some will bear 100, some will bear 60, some will bear 30. Interesting how Jesus gives a, kind of a breakdown. So how much fruit are you bearing? How much fruit are you bearing in your life? Well, we, we don't really know. But we do know how we can bear fruit. We know how we can bear fruit. One of the ways we can bear fruit um, there's several different ways. This, this is kind of my, my take on my understanding of Scripture. Uh, one, one example of fruit is financial, right? Financial. Paul wrote the church at Philippi, and it's actually a thank you letter. He was actually thanking the church at Philippi for partnering with him and, and, and supporting him in ministry. And so he talks about fruit there, right? We know that it, sharing the gospel and people coming to faith in Christ, then they bear fruit. Their life is radically changed. I think fruit is investing your life in things that are eternal. Well, what's eternal? You invest in the Word of God by reading, studying, understanding it, trying to live it out. You're, bearing, you're going to bear fruit, right? The Word of God is eternal, um, you invest in your relationship with God. That's eternal. You invest in souls and people. That's going to be eternal. Um, notice what James says in uh, two, chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? Is dead. So the difference between Paul and James, uh, Paul, Romans, and James, the book of James, the little brother of Jesus, they, there was a disagreement on, um, well, it appeared that there was a disagreement on the matter of faith and works, but actually there was no disagreement. They were just, their angle on things, they took a different angle. So for instance, Paul focuses on the inward experience. He talks about, you know, we're justified by faith alone, right? Well, that is how you can know that you're a believer. You are justified. You're declared righteous. When you come to faith in Christ, Right? He, he, he sees you through the cross. The moral record of Jesus was applied to you the moment you trusted Christ to be your Savior. His perfect record was applied to you. That's, that's mind-blowing when you think about the gospel that way. Right? God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. I mean, that, that's, that, that transaction took place. How, how do we have the righteousness of Christ? Because it was imputed. It was given. It was given to us. His righteousness given to us. And that, that's the sweetness of the gospel. So Paul's focus was on the inward experience. You're justified by faith alone. 
James focuses on the outward experience, how you live out your faith, right? How to show that you're a believer. So one was knowing you're a believer. The other one was like, no, it's about how we can show that we're a believer. It's the difference between faith and works. Faith is the root of our salvation. It's the foundation. It's the basis. But works is the fruit of our salvation. So Paul focuses on the root of salvation. He talks about this, this internal work. At, at the moment you get saved, God does an inside job. He comes into your life. He changes you. He changes your heart. He forgives you. He works in your life. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. What happens after you profess faith in Christ? What does your life look like after you trust Jesus? Is your life different? Is your life in step with the gospel? Is your life in alignment with the teachings of Jesus? There should be transformation. There should be growth. There should be change. So really, it comes down to this question. What dominates your heart? What dominates your heart? The hard heart, maybe that's where you're at. You can honestly say, man, you know, maybe you see yourself as smarter than God. You, You don't need God. You don't need Christianity. Maybe shallow heart is where you're at. You, life is about ease and comfort. You want blessing rather than bruising. You don't want God to refine your character. Maybe the divided heart is where you sit today. You're consumed with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world. And literally, it's, just, it's, it's choking you to death. Or the responsive heart. You've allowed the word of God to penetrate your heart and to change you from the inside out. Jesus is a sower. The seed is the word of God. But there's four soils. Path, rocky ground, thorns, good soil. As believers, let's yield and let's invest in things that are going to outlast, outlive us for all eternity. Let's bear fruit, right? We're, we're getting ready to go on a um, high school young adult mission trip to Costa Rica. And there's going to be a lot of different soils in a few weeks. Some are going to flat out. Enemy's going to snatch, snatch that seed, right? Some seed's going to fall on the rocky ground. And there's not going to be much depth, good soil, moisture. Some seed is going to fall amongst the thorns. People are going to, they're just consumed with the here and the now and earthly. Not the spiritual, not the eternal. Like what? What is ultimately dominating their life right now? It's the affairs of this world. Being in love with this world. But then some seed is going to fall on good soil. And they're going to, they're going to hear it. They're going to understand it. And then it's going to produce growth in their life. There's going to be fruit. And so pray for our team as we go to Costa Rica to share the gospel with hundreds of people that the word of God would change 
people's lives. Let's pray.